0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. Hope you got your Bibles with you. Be turning to 2 Peter chapter 2. A couple things I wanted to mention to you. I hope you got some sermon notes that look like this. Should have both sides on that. And also an info guide Uh, for the next two weeks at least. um, I'd like for you to take a connection card. It looks like this. This is what we ask our guests to fill out. If you are a guest, please fill one of those out. Um, but what I'm also asking you to use this for is to write down nominations for deacons. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be taking that. I, we, will, we will look at God's Word and, and, and work through this list. And, uh, brothers and sisters, can I encourage you this morning? In light of the Word that you are fixing to hear, we need godly leaders. Amen? We need godly leaders to serve His church. And we need godly leaders to teach his church, and we need godly leaders to protect his church. And I am asking you to ask God, why not? 2 Peter chapter 2. Look with me. We're going to read, we're going to be in verse 10 today, but I wanted to remind ourselves this morning of sort of where we've been and where we where we're going. So look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. This is as it were shortly before he would be martyred. This is to some degree his last will and testament of what is important to him and what he is saying is that false teachers are here and false teachers will arise and they will plague the church. They will attack from within. And so at the end of verse 3, look at what it says. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So Peter His simply announcing to the church that these false teachers have already been condemned by God. They're under his condemnation. And now look with me at verse 9. And remember, we talked about God's justice when it said in verse 9 that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So, God is just. And he knows how to deliver his people. And he knows how to keep the false teachers under judgment until the day that he will hold them to account. So, the beginning of verse 10. Peter's beginning to introduce these people. And so this message today is Peter's simply introducing these people. When you see the these and the they in this text, it is because he's speaking directly about, not to, about the false teachers. So stand with me now in reverence to God's Word and we will look from verse 10 to verse 22. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count in pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness." These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is God's Word. Oh God, Is Your Word. Hard. It's Hard. And yet we as a church do not skip God's Word. We preach it. So Lord, I ask You that You would do Your work in Your people. That this would be a sober wake-up call. For those that are yours, give us ears to hear the warning to church. In Jesus' name, you could be seated. I don't know whether you remember it or not. There used to be, depends on how old you are, (laughs) a lot of you don't remember it. There's a program called Scared Straight. Anybody ever remember it? Still on YouTube, you know, if you you look it up. They basically took 15, 16, 17-year-old kids that are in they in gangs, that are on drugs, that are fighting and whatnot. It takes them into prison to literally try to scare them straight so that they know this is what's coming. This is what lies ahead for you if you do not stop. To some degree, it's what Peter's doing. But listen to me this morning. You've got to understand the context. Peter is not talking to the false teachers. He's not warning them. He's warning the church. And here's what he's saying. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. If you follow them, you will be destroyed with them. This is the message. Brothers and sisters, I have labored this week to make sure that I do not be more passionate than Peter, but I dare not, based off God's Word, be less. I cannot. I do not want to be more Clear, but I cannot be less clear than what he is warning God's church. How do I pick these people out? Jesus himself says they're, they're wolves and they dress like sheep, they're hard to tell. So, how do I pick? Here's what Peter wants them to know this morning. You need to remember their depravity is extreme, and you can tell it by their life, their doctrine is empty. And by both, you can tell they are still enslaved in their sin. And above all, we must remember that they are damned deceivers, not redeemed followers of Christ. And we must not follow them. This is the message. This is the warning first that we must remember their depravity. We live in a world of extreme. If you go to a buffet, who wants a buffet? You can go to a mega bar now you can have so much food in the room, you don't even know which one to go to. Here, there, three dessert bars. I mean, what do you do? You know, extreme. Who wants to go to a baseball game? You can go now. You can tie a rubber band to your feet and jump off a cliff. Can't say anything. I've done that. It's extreme. Who wants to be normal and has come into the church the desire to be entertained, to achieve maximum pleasure? has now entered into God's house. And here's what Scripture says always happens. It degenerates quickly into sexual perversion within God's house. Simply what sin does. The Reformers, here in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. They coined a phrase called total depravity. That was the term they used to describe their conviction that sin corrupts the entire human nature. Their depravity is extreme and is characterized by arrogance, greed, and sensuality. First, look at verse 10. Arrogance. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Bold and willful, that word means daring and arrogant. The very definition of arrogance is self-willed no trembling you see that no trembling no respect of god no fear of his messengers so who are these glorious ones it's a little confusing there's some dispute about that look at verse 11 it says whereas angels though greater in might and power do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the lord so it it seems to be here what's happening here is a contrast they're speaking of evil fallen angels. He's already talked about that before. And he appears to be contrasting the glorious ones, fallen angels, with the good angels that you see in verse 11. Now, go with me to Jude 9. It gives a little bit more clarity to what I think Peter and Jude both are trying to, to allude to. And listen to me as you turn into Jude 9. Don't fall into angels. Remember that from the other week. Don't fall into this. Write it down on a paper and study it later. But don't fall into this. You'll miss the point if you do. Jude 9 says this, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So what I want you to see this morning with these false teachers is they are arrogantly flippant about the spiritual Flipping about his angels. And here's what he's contrasting. Even the good angels does not utter a blasphemous word about the fallen angels. Why? Because even the fallen angels bear the image of their Creator. He says the Lord rebukes. And these false teachers not only make flippantly light of of the spirituals and the angels, they slander God's messengers, they minimize the Old Testament prophets, they demean the apostles' teaching, the very thing in Acts 2.42 that the church must be devoted to. This text is a warning, brothers and sisters, to not be flippant to the way you throw your spiritual weight around. The spiritual must be took seriously. There is a real demonic activity and we are being entertained by it. We play games with occult things. We watch TV about the paranormal and we are entertained with the things the same things that these false teachers are arrogant about. We must not be. You take the spiritual seriously because it's serious. They're arrogant with it and they're ignorant how do we know this? Look at verse 12 and 13. Well, they live like animals. That's what they're doing. They're behaving like animals. Take out the commas here and you can see, gain a little clarity to start with. But these, remember who these are, will also be destroyed in their destruction. They live like animals. What is this saying? They are unspiritual people. That's so why they're contrasting them to animals. Bad news. Animals aren't spiritual beings. Th- this is what he's comparing them to. They're unspiritual p- people who make decisions based off their impulses and not truth. Do what I want to do. I'm going to bring it into the church. They're creatures with their fleshly desires. Unspiritual. They make decisions based off their fleshly desires. Points to they're not only their their immorality but their ignorance. 1 Corinthians 2:14 says, "You can't understand the spiritual unless you're spiritual. You can't understand spiritual things." They don't understand it. This is a graphic picture that a man who chooses to live like a beast will perish like one. This is what it's saying. They simply live by their own passions without shame, and they slander things that they cannot understand. Verse 13, "At the beginning in case we didn't get it, says they will suffer wrong for the wage of their wrongdoing. This is over and over in this text. They have they will be punished for their arrogance and their unbridled sensuality. Look at verse, the end of verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. He's saying that even the Romans wait till nighttime to do this stuff but they do it in broad daylight. You remember 1 Corinthians 5? This is happening in the church and Paul is undone. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians one? The pagans don't even do this. And you're putting up with it in the church. This is what he's saying. They're shameless. They're indulgent. He calls on blots and blemishes. They're blots and blemishes reveling in their deception while they feast with you. This gets to the very word hedonism. They are this was all in the Greek philosophy. They are pursuit of sensual pleasure in broad daylight. Contrasted in chapter three, verse 14 that we'll get to in a couple weeks, where we are supposed to have our goal in life to be without spot or blemish. He's saying, "These are blemishes. Spots. Jude 12 says they feast with you without fear. This is the extreme depravity. Let me give you a picture this morning. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week. Here's what it would be like. Then We set up our tables here. We usually have two tables here. Did you come in? And I've got a keg on each table. No unleavened bread. Oh, no, no. We're going to celebrate in Jesus this morning. So I set up a table with all this party stuff and all the food you want. And we just come in here in Jesus' name and we tie one on. This is what's happening in God's church. That with that kind of lifestyle, they're they are coming in and saying they're communing with Christ and His people. He said, this is depraved. Make no mistake, look at verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They're, this is what they are being controlled by. This is the overarching thing of the whole text here. They are unbridled sexually. In other words, when they're proclaiming God's Word, when they're passing out the ordinance, when they're teaching your kids, they're sizing people up sexually. That's what it means. They cannot stop looking at women, looking at they're supposed to be their sisters as objects and not people made in the image of God. They cannot stop it. Quote, if lust is dwelt upon and acted upon, eventually it will dominate one's thinking. And that's exactly what it was doing in these false teachers' lives. Not only that, they're enticing unsteady souls. Verse, the end of verse 14. They're seducing the unstable. Brothers and sisters, if you go to a church and they do not open your Bible, if they don't, if you don't see any need to open your Bible because no one's talking about it, get out. Get out, because this is what's happening. Their their unsteady souls are those who are not firmly establishing God's Word. They don't know what He says, and so whatever these people say, and what these people say is okay to do, they're saying, whoa, hey, look at that. They, They knock the feet out from underneath the immature by using the own immature sinful nature against them. He lead them away from the truth, not towards the truth. They're arrogant, they're perverted, and they're greedy. End of verse 14. They have hearts trained in greed. The word trained there is a word for gymnasium, second nature to them. They've practiced it, they're experts at greed. And he says, You need to take a lesson from a donkey. That's what it says. I don't know if you know this story, you don't have time to get into it in depth. Numbers 22 to Numbers 24. He stays. This, this character Balaam stays in, unfortunately, the history of the Israelites for some time. He was a non-Israelite prophet who pronounced curses to the highest bidder. The Midians thought that the Israelites were going to destroy them, so they sent for this prophet and said, Hey, we want you to come pronounce a curse on, on the Israelites. If not, they're going to they're destroy us. And God told this false prophet, you're not going... You're not going. So it starts this interchange, back and forth with these Midian who brought a lot of money with them and with God. And God finally said, well, go ahead. So he goes. Well, he didn't know. God put an angel. And God's angel is going to kill him. So as he went, he said he went in a perverse way. He went for his own end. Had a plan. He didn't know there was an angel about to kill him. And the donkey saw the angel. Balaam didn't. So the donkey tries to get out of the way and crushes his foot and then he gets beat for it. him beats the donkey. The donkey sees the angel again and the donkey just, he just hits the ground. Well, he gets beaten for it. And then God loosed the tongue of this donkey and he ended this hilarious interchange. Well, this donkey said, hey, why are you hitting me? Well, what does the guy do? He starts talking to him. But you hurt my foot. You hurt my foot. And, he, and the donkey said, did I ever do that before? <laughs> and then he saw the angel. The angel said, what would have been for that donkey? You'd have been dead, dude. You came in a perverse way. So what's the point? Later on in Numbers 31, we see that this man led God's people into not only what he's doing for his own game, but into immorality itself. He becomes a chief example of what false teachers look like. Unprincipled teachers that'll do anything for their own pocketbooks. One of our brothers back there showed me a tweet, just came out from one of these imposters that said, If you trust Jesus as your Savior, you'll never be poor again. Remember, brothers and sisters, their lives are dominated by arrogance, uncontrollable sensuality, greed, and that, and they bring this into God's house and they've doctrine. So I have a picture in my head of a ring box that's empty. I made this little faux pas and early on in our marriage, me and Christine had been talking about marriage. We, didn't, we hadn't met long before we was already talking about getting married and we had been talking about it for some time. Valentine's Day is coming and she was expecting a ring but you know I'm a guy. I don't quite put all this stuff together and, and I didn't want to be, I don't want to give a ring. That's what everybody does. Everybody gives them a diamond on Valentine's Day. I'm gonna be different. I don't want normal. So I went and bought her a nice little ring, I had a heart. It was a nice Valentine's ring. <coughs> and it might as well have been empty. Because when she opened it up, she was expecting a diamond, and what did she find? A little Valentine's ring. Might as well have been an empty box. Brothers and sisters, this is what these false teachers are doing. A nice, beautiful empty box and listen this empty box damns people to hell it's serious it's empty box how do we what does this empty box look like it looks like a showy speech that's what it looks like Verse 17 it says these are waterless springs misdriven by storm they're flamboyant they're flashy they're well spoken they have really cool illustrations. No substance. Jude 12 calls them waterless clouds. But you go to the spring for something to drink, there's nothing there. So, a rain cloud that looks like it's going to rain, it gives condensation that's gone in five minutes and leaves you with absolutely nothing. That's what they're bringing to God's it simply leaves naive people thirsting for more it's like running a marathon and someone giving you a coke you don't need a coke you need water so i ask you look at the text look at verse 17 does waterless clouds sound like true believers to you let's listen to what jesus said it's on the screen john 7:38 says this whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow what rivers of living water John four thirteen to 14 while he's evangelizing the woman at the well, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to what? Eternal life. John seventeen three says eternal life is knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is what a true believer looks like. But verse 18, this is not what they are doing. It says they're speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping and those who live in error. Here we have again they entice with sensual passions. See, the word folly is what it's saying. They sound weighty, they sound good, but their words are stupid. That's what it means. They're stupid. Now simply turn on your TV. What you're going to find out that stupidity is often very effective. It's a following. They're shamelessly immoral. They play tricks on the naive, on the ignorant, on the immature. This is the picture of a fisherman with a, with a hook with bait on it. That's what they want. They want, to, they, want to, they want to get the naive and the immature. They want to hook them in and they promise them with their showy speech false freedom. False freedom. Look at verse 19. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Freedom for these people, for false teachers, is freedom from judgment. Sound familiar? It's the only text many people know. Judge not. Freedom from judgment and freedom from moral restraint. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to bring it into the church and demand to be accepted. They are slaves of, listen, look at that word corruption. That's the word for depravity. It means a moral corruption. They are slaves to moral corruption. They are simply slaves leading other slaves to another form of slavery. The Reformation Study Bible says it this way, a profound irony of sin is evident here. The quest for freedom from God leads only to slavery, to sin and self. True freedom from sin involves joyful slavery to God. Brothers and sisters, I've thought a lot what I'm about to say. And listen, I do not want you to go out of here today and think that what I'm reading is something, it's just a problem back then. It's here. i read you directly an article from the United Methodist Church's website, May 2016 in Portland, Oregon. They're simply reporting what's going on in their denomination. Just simply reading a letter from 500 openly LGBTQ clergy, future pastors and faith leaders in a number of different denominations offered much love and light to the 111 United Methodist clergy and candidates who came out as gay on on May 9th. Quote, though we come from different traditions, you are our family in Christ and our siblings in the common struggle to live fully and authentically into our God-given identities and callings, states the letter posted on the website Believe, Believe Out Loud, an online community that empowers Christians to work for lesbians, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer or questioning equality. The letter was offered so those clergy would not feel alone. According to Peter, I offer no word of warning to these pastors who in their immorality have now brought it into God's church and are teaching it to God's people. I offer them no warning. They stand condemned by God in His Word. I offer a warning to those people. Who come into there. What is he doing? What are these people doing? They offer pagans the freedom to practice their immorality. Under the banner of the cross. And God's word says the gloom of utter darkness. Has been reserved for them forever. And if you follow them. You will go to hell with them. Remember. Their false freedom shows us something. It shows us that their natures are enslaved. They're enslaved. Look at verse 19. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Look at the word overcome. The word enslaved. These are all perfect tense. Perfect tense. That means it's happened in the past and it's producing the state of being right now. The word enslaved is passive. It's happened to them. What are they saying? Saying very clearly that these false teachers' mind, their will, and their emotions are enslaved by a nature that's dead in sin. By the way, this is what Ephesians 2 says was true of me and you. But God, God saved us. But you see, false preachers who stand in front of the pulpits will never proclaim that. Because it means they would have to repent. Romans 6:16. 6, turn with me to there. Romans 6:16 6, delineates clearly between these two forms of slavery. We see that these false teachers are dominated and controlled by their sinful natures. Romans 6, verse 16, "Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey." either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, praise the Lord for verse 17. But thanks be to God, that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. That's what I'm talking about. This must be declared this is the difference between a false professor and a true believer. Peter sounding a warning. The fate of these apostates stands as a warning to those who sit under their influence. Quote The decision is of great consequence, and those who are wavering must see that heaven and hell are at stake. That's what at stake, brothers and sisters, eternity. Verse 20 and 21 could not be clearer. For if they had escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse than the first for them. For it, verse 21, for it would have better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. Look at verse 20. The word escape. That means to avoid. That means for a season after they professed faith in Christ, they didn't live immorally. They didn't come out. And they did it with full knowledge of who the Lord is and what he did. They know it, but whatever knowledge of Jesus that they had, it never took root. How do we know it didn't take root? Look at what it says. They are again entangled in them and overcome. So is this teaching that these false teachers lost their salvation? Turn with me to 2 Peter 1, verse 3. I'm going to read verse 3 and 4. I'm only going to read verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Remember, there is an us and there are these. Us, he's talking to the church. These, he's talking to the false teachers. Here, what is he saying? He's saying that the true knowledge of God that, that gives us a new nature, gives us divine power. Through the knowledge of Him, to live not for ourselves, but for His glory and for His moral excellence. He gives us divine power and the divine ability to share in His nature. That's simply what it produces. But it didn't produce it in them. They're apostates. Apostasy is to understand the reality and truthfulness and implications of the gospel. And to willfully turn and walk away. Let me say that again apostasy is to understand the reality, the truthfulness, and implications of the gospel and to willfully turn and walk away. In other words, listen, write this down. Deliberate rejection of the truth increases one's responsibility before God. Deliberate rejection of the truth increases one's responsibility before God. And the visible reality of these false teachers' life is that it failed... To produce endurance, therefore, is inauthentic. This is exactly what Mark 4, 5 tells us in the parable of the sower, that the gospel went out and hit all kinds of soil, and yet only one took root and produced fruit. It's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, verse 22, where later in his ministry he says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Turn with me to 1 John. I want you to see this. This is explicitly clear in Scripture. 1 John is speaking about those who have abandoned the community of faith. They went out, 1 John 2 verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Brothers and sisters, if you have rejected the truth, God offers you today's salvation by repenting and trusting in His Son. But these apostates have turned from it. Verse 22, look at it. Their lives and their beliefs reveal that their natures are unchanged. Return to the question, were these people saved? Look at verse 22. What is true? What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returned to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You can put a sweater on a dog if you want to. You can set him at your table, you can put him in a chair, you can give him a little high chair, let him eat off of one of your plates. But when he gets down, he gets down on all four legs. And if he throws his food up, what is he going to do? He's going to eat it. Why? Because he's a dog. If that little piggly wiggly, you clean him up and you put a bow on his tail and you put Thanksgiving in front of him or a pot, a slop, he's going to go squealing like a pig to the slop. Why? Because he's a pig. And he uses these illustrations because in that day the dogs were wild and dangerous and the pigs were unclean. And he says they're simply being who they are. Don't follow them. 2.40 says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Hebrews 10, 12, that's exactly what Christ brought at the cross. He brought a new covenant that gives a new nature, and this new nature keeps us from turning from our Lord. It's good news today for those. Bad news for the false teachers, and we warn them, do not follow them. So what today? One question. Is your life dominating goal the pursuit of treasuring pleasure or treasuring Christ? Because listen, it is hard to be a Christian in America because we've been told you can have both. We've attached a form of Christianity that has a hedonistic idea that God blesses America so we can pursue entertainment, wealth, and physical pleasure. And that's a lie straight from hell. Is pleasure wrong? No. It is God who created sex. He created pleasure. He created food. He created music. And He loves pleasure. But when it becomes your life-dominant goal, you've just become ensnared. It's become what you treasure. It's become what you think about. So I want to encourage you, as God's Word always does, to put off something this morning and to put on something and never stop putting it off and never stop putting it on. Turn with me to Philippians 4.10. I want you just to contrast as we close a picture of Paul and a picture of these false teachers. You should have a picture of them in your modern mind right now. Because we have them here alive and well. And I want you to contrast them with Paul. Listen to me. Didn't you get Philippians 4.10, look look up here at me. I want you to put off this morning a life-dominating goal of treasuring things. Listen, I want you to put off a life dominating goal that treasures anything above Christ. Because listen, the worst thing for some of your treasuring has people above Christ. Listen, if you treasure your children above Christ, you can just well damn them to hell. They need to see, parents, that treasure Christ above all things. You need to put that off this morning. You need to put it off. You need to put on something. A life-dominating goal. Her treasure in Christ, what does it look like, Stephen? What does it look like? I want you to look at Paul, Philippians 4, look at verse 10. But listen, look at me before you get this, you got to get this. Paul's in prison, okay? Before we read this text, understand this he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. And listen, it doesn't have a TV with a basketball goal outside, he's in prison. I just want you to get that context. Listen to what he says. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and a hunger, abundance, and need, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Isn't it something that we use verse 13 to claim our life-dominating goal to treasure things more than Christ? We use it for our ball games. We use it to get our job so we can make more money. And Paul's writing it in prison. What we should be asking ourselves Church in Philip, I was asking us, Paul, how in the world can you be so content? Can you be so peaceful? Can you be so stable in prison? Look at verse 8. Here's how. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You want to be peaceful, content and stable, put on what? What does it say? Thinking. Put on thinking. This isn't it what it's saying? Put it on. Thinking about what? About your own fleshly want-tos? No, about what is about truth, about God's justice, about what is wholly pleasing to him, and what is worth praising God for, and what is morally excellent. This is what glorifies him. This is what we must put on. How are they? How did they know what to ponder? How did they know what to think? They knew it because Paul had discipled them. That's what it says. He says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen, me. Me. Brothers and sisters. Paul offers a contrast to those false teachers who tells you that this world exists to get all of it. And Paul's sitting in prison and said, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful I'm in prison. You know why? Because you were learning to be more holy and content in Christ because of what I'm suffering. Because I got to share the gospel with a jailer today. And there's no way that I'm going to get out of here before everybody around me has heard about my Jesus. Praise God for that. I'm so happy. Most of us have wasted years of our life being angry at God for doing something to you instead of seeing it as a benefit for the good of other people. God causes these things to happen for the good of His people, for the glory of His name, and we must stand firm in it. They were watching Paul's life and his words. And they said, if he can stand firm in prison, we can be free for the glory of his name. We can carry on. We can do it, brothers and sisters. This is what's at stake in the way we live and what we say. And as I close, brothers and sisters, I want to appeal to you. Who do you think? If we tolerate false teaching in this church, who do you think are the young and immature that are going to fall prey to it if it's not your kids? That's what's at stake. We need leaders who will teach children. Why? Because they will be undone. Ask someone who's in college right now. You have your foundation laid or you do not. We must labor together, brothers and sisters. I need those who will stand with me to serve God's church and to lead God's church. We need people to teach our kids for the glory of His name in in another go-to-service one hour and teach our kids the other hour, not because it's comfortable, but because it's what, what we must do. We are called to do. We are called to teach, to receive, and to let those kids see God's name through your life. Brothers and sisters, let's stand firm together for the glory of His name. Let us not follow what is false. So God, Your Word is true. And yeah, Lord, I know this is hard. and I don't want to be unclear. I don't want Your people frustrated or or questions, Lord. I want it to be truth. And so Lord, would Your Holy Spirit do Your work in the lives of your people. Lord, that we would put off what this world has to offer. Embrace the treasure that is knowing you. It's making you known. Lord, we are weak. and you are strong. And so when we are strong, we have to say, That's God's power in me. Not me. God make us faithful. Take our roots deep. Lord, we don't want to lead anyone astray. We don't want to lead people in our house astray. We don't want to lead people in our neighborhoods astray. We don't want to lead anybody across the ocean. Lord, we must go because they must know. Lord, thank you for the saving power that is through your Son, Jesus Christ. That simply because you were gracious and good, you've saved us. Not by any work we've done, but simply to magnify your amazing grace. So Lord, now we ask you, can we stand before you? In the blood of Christ. And just praise your name. You receive that. Our worship. Not only what we sing. But how we live. That all of our life. Would be a fragrant offering. To your glory. Until you come. Allow us this privilege. We pray. In your son's name. Stand with us and let's sing together.